Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hey folks, welcome to the show. And today, Mikey's in the driving seat because you know, we, in that ships episode we had earlier on, we got talking about the eccentric American billionaire Howard Hughes. You know, the the aviator movie with uh, good old Leo, and we talked about just how much of a role Hughes had in numerous historic episodes over the 20th century. But, Mike, you've got some stories that didn't quite make the final edit of that movie, haven't you? Oh, yes. And, Paulie, the word eccentric is putting it mildly. Hughes was the archetypal crazy billionaire. He leaves Elon Musk bobbing around in his wake. Yeah, but I suppose, let's face it, Mike, yeah, we, we probably wouldn't be talking about him now if he'd been a pauper. Um, so I suppose the first question we've got to ask is, how did he get so rich? Well, actually, mate, it starts with his father, Howard Hughes Sr. He's okay. the one that gets rich in the first place. Now, Howard Sr., he's born on the 9th of September, 1869. Right. One of four kids. Now, I didn't know this, but... It's sort of weird. It was an artistic family. His elder sister, Greta, and his younger brother, Felix, well, they go on to become quite famous opera singers. Mm -hmm. And his other brother, Rupert, well, Rupert published his first novel in 1902 called The Whirlwind Mm -hmm. before becoming the American editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica from 1902 to 1905. Wow. He writes a stack of novels, this Rupert does, as well as over 100 short stories, He's best known for a four-volume autobiography of George Washington. Ah. After the Washington book, he turns his hand to plays and eventually screenwriting. In fact, Rupert wins an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for The Patent Leather Kid, mm. which is a weird title. Yes. <laughs> he was also president of the American Writers Association, which will come as no surprise, this was a group of anti-communist writers. Ah. But getting back to Howard Sr., turns out he was sort of the black sheep of this artistic family. He had a string of failed businesses. Um, that is up until 1902. 1902, he's in Texas. He's looking for oil mm-hmm. after the big spindle top discovery down there. Sure. Now, he teams up with a guy called Walter Sharp. Mm-hmm. Now, like everyone else who was drilling for oil, they found that the drills of the day were practically useless when it came to breaking through hard rock. Mm-hmm. In 1906... He begins to experiment with two toothy rotating steel bits. You know, this is not my strong point in engineering. <laughs> yeah. Two toothy rotating steel bits that would pulverise their way through the hard stone. Right. He tested it at a place called Goose Creek in 1908. Mm-hmm. And in 1909, he patents it and it becomes known as the Rock Eater. Right. Here's the thing, though, mate. He wasn't the only person on the oil fields to have a similar idea. Okay. But he was most probably the only one that had a law degree from the law school of Iowa University. Ah. He best understood the patent process, and he and Sharp, they go on to co-found the Sharp Hughes Tool Company. Mm. And here's the clever thing. They license these tool bits. Mm. So when Sharp dies, Hughes takes over management, and he starts buying up stock. So that by 1918, it's now known as the Hughes Tool Company. Right. It's essential asset was the patent for the drill. If you wanted to drill for oil, you had to buy the license to use their drill bit. 
And that's right, Mikey, because you've got to remember, haven't you, oil, you know, Texan oil in particular. Well, look, if we talk about American success in the 19th century being built on the back of slavery, then I suppose there's no way the US would have been half as successful as it was in the early 20th century if it hadn't been for big oil. So here's the thing. Howard Sr., he dies in 1924. And 19-year-old Howard Jr., the guy we're going to talk about, Howard Hughes, he assumes 75% of the company with the other 25% going to his grandparents and his uncle Felix. Mm. He's the opposite of him. However, whilst still only 20, Hughes has himself declared legally an adult, because back in those days you weren't an adult till you were 21. 21, yeah. yeah. He probably buys out his grandparents and his uncle, and this is when he has his longtime associate, a guy called Noah Dietrich, appointed as CEO of Hughes Tool Company, while he heads off to California to pursue his two main loves, filmmaking and aviation. Now, that guy, Noah Dietrich, I've heard of him. Like, he's quite important, isn't he? Yeah, very important, mate. Now, the story goes that Hughes met him for an interview, and mm-hmm. he just asked him general knowledge questions like, how does a battleship find its range on its target? Right. And how does the internal combustion engine work? Okay. So Noah answers both of these, and he got a job as Hughes' executive assistant. But he soon rose to CEO of the Hughes business empire. Mm. By 1933, and with very little input from Howard, the Hughes tool engineers create the tri-rotary drill bit. Ah. And between 1934 and 1950, this device becomes standard on every oil drilling site across the world. And this is what makes Howard Hughes the wealthiest person on earth. Right. Although he's gone to Hollywood, he, he does take a bit more interest in the company at this stage. And it diversifies into more cinema, lots more aviation. In fact, he goes on to buy TWA. Mm. And of course... Las Vegas, where he buys up casinos and hotels. We'll, yes. we'll get to that later. However, here's the thing. The Hughes Tool Company, it remained by far the most profitable arm and the core of the company's wealth, mm. all of which for many years was run on the day-to-day basis by Noah Dietrich. Mm. In a later book, Dietrich would write off Hughes and, and say, of all his passions, TWA had a certain mystique for him. Hughes' aircraft was an avocation for him. He didn't give a damn about the tool company, except as a source of wealth and an outlet for his tendency to tinker. And he, he was a pretty good tinker. But I love this one. He goes, mate, it's often estimated that Hughes would have been much richer indeed if he had just sat back and let the licensing fees roll in. Okay, so that's Hughes and where he got his money from, essentially, you, know, you were saying, from his dad. But what about his mum? Well, she's an interesting character. In fact, when I was doing the reading for this, it was a great quote that one of the biographers said. If you imagine his dad as sort of like the Daniel Day-Lewis character from There Will Be Blood, or <laughs> mum's sort of like Scarlett O'Hara from Gone With The Wind. Right. I mean, Hughes' dad was a, was a huge bullying presence to his son. His mother, Aileen Gano, she was an entirely different person. Mm. She was Dallas aristocracy. Right. She was the granddaughter of a Confederate general. Not necessarily a great start, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, too, she was really obsessed with little Howard's health. She would actually inspect him all over, mm. and of a night he would often share the bed with her. <laughs> right, OK, sharing bed with mummy. <laughs> we, we know since Sophocles, not really a great idea. It was easy to think. Howard Sr., in an attempt to counter mum's mollycoddling, would have young Howard sent off to draconian boarding schools to try and toughen the boy up. Ah. In fact, the, these schools would often overlook the boy's 
lack of academic prowess as soon as Dad wrote them out a whopping check. Sure, from the tools, yeah. yeah exactly. Here's the thing. The shy and, and partially deaf young Howard, he hated going to these schools and he didn't fit in. So Hughes was partially deaf. I never knew that. Yes, and also too, you have to remember, Paulie, polio was a real scourge at that time. Mm. So, you know, you can sort of almost understand his mother's overprotectiveness. <laughs> but here's the thing. In his teenage years, he developed some sort of mystery paralysis. Mm. This could not be properly diagnosed. and it, Well, it disappeared after a few months. And, well, this fits in with the whole Hughes story. It was probably psychosomatic. <laughs> Okay, so today we're looking at the bizarre life of Howard Hughes and how it has connections with so many of the major 20th century big moments in history. Now, Mikey, you've already hinted at the idea of him being a little bit wacko, and so I suppose next we've got to go to Hollywood, right? Mate, and this is where we get the first era of Party Boy Hughes. Now, this is a reaction to his father's discipline and his, his mother's overprotectiveness. He goes completely Hollywood. Mm. As his biographer, Peter Harry Brown, and a guy called Pat H. Brosk put it, Hughes never bought one pair of shoes where he could buy 20. Right. Never purchased a car when he could have half a dozen. He bought up fancy watches by the tray and was fitted for 20 hand-cut Brooks Brothers suits in one afternoon. Right, so he knew how to live the Hollywood lifestyle, but did he actually have any success in the movies? Well, yes, mate, and then later, no, mate. <laughs> His first two films, Everybody's Acting and Two Arabian Nights, 1926 and 1927, yeah. they were both big box office hits. And mm. In fact, the latter one actually got an Oscar for Best Direction in a Comedy. Wow. He then goes on to produce Hell's Angels, a big budget epic that was shot twice. He shot the movie twice. Why would he want to do that? Well, see, here's the thing, mate. A year and a half into production of Hell's Angels, the jazz singer comes out, mm. which, of course, is the most famous talkie. Mm. So Howard decided he needed to turn Hell's Angels into a talkie, which meant recasting the female lead, Greta Nielsen, from Europe with Gene Harlow. In fact, ah. it does make Gene Harlow's career. But despite the fact that it was probably the biggest grossing film of the early sound era, it could never quite regain its exorbitant budget. Because of you know, the shooting it twice. Exactly, right. mate. Yeah. Then his next most famous film is probably The Outlaw. Mm -hmm. This is where he, um, well, he put his engineering skills to use. <laughs> okay. He decided that Jane Russell's bra was not showing off her cleavage to his liking. Mm -hmm. So according to Hollywood legend, he designed a brand new bra. In fact, the forerunner of the Wonder Bra was born. Mm. What's not often reported, though, is that Russell found the damn thing so uncomfortable that she hid Hughes' invention and, well, improvised. So we mentioned all these movies, Mikey, but by this stage, he still hasn't actually bought RKO yet, has he? No, mate, he buys RKO in 1948. And how does that go? Disastrously. <laughs> okay. RKO was one of the big studios. It also owned a string of movie theatres and a radio network. Mm. But here's the thing. By this stage in his life, by 1948, the once profligate spender has turned into a miser. He sacks 700 staff and production at RKO Studios goes from 30 movies a year down to nine. Uh. And this wasn't helped by the fact that Hughes actually shut RKO down for six months. Oh, right. He did this so he could investigate the political leanings of the staff and stars. In fact, it reached a point where he would often shut down production if he thought that the star of his movies had not expressed enough anti-communist sentiment for his liking. Mm. Eventually, he sold the company in 1955 for a million-dollar profit, but his biggest profit came from selling off the movie theatres controlled by the company. <laughs> All right, folks, so we're talking Howard Hughes, the amazing life of Howard Hughes, really. We've had Hollywood, we've had the oil, but what about the planes, Mikey? You know, I'm particularly thinking about the spectacular plane crash in 1946. Did that really happen? 
Did the movie get it right? Was he scarred for life? Yes, mate, he was. I mean, Hughes's achievement as an aviator are, are well known, but that crash only helped to accelerate his downward spiral. It's the start of his opioid addiction, ah. but also it did contribute something to the modern world. Whilst recovering, Hughes actually designed a bed that could move to help him sit up or even get out of bed by using small electric motors. Ah. It was, in fact, the forerunner of the modern hospital bed. Right. However, as is portrayed in the movie, this is where Hughes does start his decline. You see, once he's well enough, he leaves hospital, but he leases a screening room from Goldwyn Studios, where he pretty much spends the next four months, often completely nude, Ooh. existing on a diet of milk, chocolate bars and pecans, and also weeing in bottles. Ah, so that's where the whole urine in the bottles myth begins. Yes, mate, but I'm not going to talk urine. <laughs> I actually want to talk the whole ice cream debacle. This is a story that people often overlook. Mm. See, by this time, Hughes is living in the Desert Inn in Las Vegas. Mm. It was well documented that in the years between 1966 and 1968, he went on the biggest real estate buying spree in Vegas history. Right. He even purchased the local TV station, KLAS, ah. and he made sure that the station ran his favourite movies during the late nights. Right. In fact, it was said that if, if he nodded off to sleep, he would place a call into the station and the movies would start again from the beginning. Ooh. But here's the thing. It was the misfortune of the Desert Inn to have him as a full-time resident. Mm. When they complained that he was taking up rooms occupied by the usual high rollers, Hughes simply bought the place. Yeah, just another notch on the real estate bedpost. Exactly, mate. And here's the thing. As the new owner of the hotel, all his meals were, they were prepared in-house, except for his dessert. Mm. And it was during this mid-1960s period that his OCD behaviour was starting to get out of control. Ah, is this the bit about the peaches? Well, mate... It's about the ice cream, but seeing as you've mentioned the peaches, let's talk about the whole peaches procedure. He actually wrote a manual for his staff about how peaches should be served. Okay, here we go. First off, the staff member had to wash their hands several times and dry them with disposable paper towels. The can had to have its label removed, then disinfected and scrubbed clean. Right. And then, and this is the important part, they were to be poured into a fresh bowl with absolutely no part of the can coming in contact with the bowl. <laughs> the spoon with which he ate the peaches had to have its handle wrapped in tissue paper, secured with tape, and then another tissue placed over that. That's the peaches. Let me go back to the ice cream. Right. I've got a feeling this is not the sort of guy who just has a single scoop of raspy ripple, right? No, mate. No, no, here's the thing. He was obsessed with Baskin Robbins. Mm. He absolutely loved their banana nut ice cream. <laughs> so much so that the hotel's employees would buy this particular flavour in bulk mm. and store it in the hotel's freezers. Then one day, much to their dismay, the company stopped making that flavour. Frantic phone calls were made to the Baskin and Robbins head office, <laughs> and the company reluctantly agreed to make a batch. But it had to be a batch of a commercial size, 350 gallons. 350 gallons of ice cream, right. Yeah, well, Banana nut ice cream. Well, yeah, mate, it's for Howard Hughes. So a refrigerated truck was dispatched to Los Angeles, and soon the hotel's freezers were groaning with Baskin and Robbins banana nut ice cream. <laughs> At which point Hughes announced that his new favourite flavour was French vanilla. Oh dear. Yeah, mate, it took the desert in a year to get rid of his surplus ice cream. <laughs> they eventually had to give it away. <laughs> right. But wasn't it also in that app around this time that he got involved with the Soviet submarine, the K-129? How did all that come about? 
Okay, mate, in the 1950s, a guy called Robert Mayhew becomes Hughes' right-hand man. Mm. Look, the two men talked multiple times a day for over 15 years, but they never actually met in person. Weird. Their paths first crossed back in 1955 when Hughes hired Mayhew, the former FBI agent, to investigate business rivals and, and love interests. Mm. It was Mayhew who became a principal advisor to Hughes during his time in Vegas, often smoothing out his boss's real estate purchases of mob-controlled casinos. You see, Mayhew, after he left the FBI, he he was a bit of a free-range operative with the CIA. Mm -hmm. And he was behind the recruitment of Cuban nationals in the Bay of Pigs debacle. And also, too, he served as a conduit between the CIA and elements of the American mafia, Mm -hmm. not just with the whole Bay of Pigs debacle, but also in multiple failed attempts to kill Fidel Castro. Right. See, as well as providing help in real estate and and clandestine surveillance, Mayhew also spent years as Hughes' personal bag man. Mm. Now, as you might imagine, Hughes liked his politicians on the right-wing side of politics. I mean, some people say he was apolitical, but but he wasn't, although he did once offer bribes to both sides of politics. He offered LBJ a million-dollar bribe to stop nuclear testing in the Nevada desert. He was Mm. desperate to bring this to an end. But he also made the same offer to Nixon, and apparently he was turned down by both. But this is where it gets interesting, Paulie. Hughes did have a long-standing relationship with Nixon. This goes back to 1950, when he actually bailed out Nixon's brother, Donald, after his business failed. Mm. Now, Mayhew would often channel money to Nixon's sidekick, a guy called B. Brabizo. Mm. But here's the thing, mate. In 1972, one of Hughes's long-standing Washington lawyers, a guy called Larry O'Brien, well, O'Brien was head of the Democratic Party, whose main officers were in... Ah, of course, the Watergate building. Yeah, mate. The theory goes like this. Nixon feared O'Brien might have some compromising material about his relationship with the world's richest man. Ah. Here's where the conspiracy theorists really like to kick things up a notch. Because remember, some of the burglars at the Watergate were exiled Cubans. And we know that Mayhew had a history with this sort of operative. Mm. Here's the thing, though, Paulie. Conspiracy theory or not, by this stage... Mayhew and Hughes had actually severed ties. In fact, Mayhew had left rather acrimoniously in 1970. He was out, and he was replaced by a group that became known as the Mormon Mafia. Okay, so today we've been talking about the bizarre life and times of Howard Hughes, how he's got into politics, a bit of the American underworld. But, Mikey, you reckon it really gets interesting, not with the mafioso types, but rather an outfit that's far, far dodgier, the Mormons. Yes, mate, and it involves that submarine you were talking about in the ship's episode and a Utah businessman, Bill Gay. Right. See, here's the thing. Gay and Hughes had met just after World War II Mm. when Gay became Hughes' chauffeur. Before, he, he climbs the corporate ladder at the Hughes Tool Company and then also the Vegas purchases. It was Gay who was given CIA clearance and helped organise the covert search mission for that Russian submarine. Right, Project Azorian. See, that's the thing. By the time that project goes ahead, Gay had been consolidating his position with Hughes for years. In fact, he was, he was the guy who surrounded Hughes with Gay's own trusted lieutenants, all but one being Mormon. Ah. See, in, in November of that year, Hughes pretty much disappears from sight. It's Gay who fires Mayhew in 1970, mm. despite the fact that Mayhew had defended him to Hughes. Later on, the editor of the Las Vegas Sun newspaper would write, Bill Gay masterminded the most malevolent scheme as he deposed some and elevated others in the Hughes hierarchy while Hughes was in a drug condition. Right. 
By Hughes's final year in Vegas, Gay had surrounded Hughes with six executives, five of whom were all Mormon, and all of whom were handpicked for their loyalty to Gay. Mm. It was these executives that whisked Hughes off from the Desert Inn and loaded him onto a plane at the local Air Force base and, and took him off to the Bahamas. Right. See, by this stage of his life, he was emaciated, filthy, and hooked on a cocktail of opioids and uppers, mm. all of which were injected by his faithful aides. Now, he spends the next few years pretty much off his face, right. travelling through uh, Central America, the Caribbean, and occasionally Florida, all the time avoiding taxes and scrutiny. In fact, he just sort of fades back into the creepy shadows until April 5th, 1976, when he dies in mid-flight between Acapulco and the Methodist Hospital in Houston. Mm. That's when the press run all the stories about his emaciated 41-kilogram body Oof. covered in bed sores. The official cause of death was kidney failure. Right. But the autopsy did say someone had administered a deadly injection of painkillers to this comatose man. They found five broken-off hypodermic needles in the muscles of his arm. So do we think that's the Mormons again? Well, mate, let's not forget, Hughes had no heirs. Right. So three weeks after his death, a handwritten will supposedly written by Hughes, was found in a desk at the offices of the Church of Latter-day Saints in Salt Lake City. Right. Yep, and this so-called Mormon will left $1.56 billion to various <sighs> charities. Right. With the remainder going to family, upper management, and guess who? His trusty Mormon aides. Ah. But here's the thing, Paul, that's actually not the wackiest part of this whole Will story. A guy called Melvin Drummer comes forward. Now, Melvin claimed that in 1967, he had found a dishevelled old man lying alongside Route 96, some 240 k's north of Vegas. Right. A few days after giving this guy a lift, apparently a mysterious man appeared at Melvin's gas station where he worked and left an envelope containing a will on Melvin's desk. Ah, oh, right. Didn't they make a movie about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jonathan Demings, um, uh, Melvin and Howard in 1980. Right. And here's the other thing, too. Melvin's will was kept for safekeeping at the local Mormon offices. Mm. But here's the thing. By 1983, both wills are deemed as forgeries by a Nevada jury. So Hughes's $2.5 billion estate was split amongst his 22 cousins. Mm. But then, in 1984, a year after that, a woman called Terry Moore was paid an undisclosed amount after she claimed that she and Hughes had secretly married in international waters off Mexico as far back as 1949. No way. And they'd never actually been divorced. So she gets an undisclosed sum to go away, mm. but her book, The Beauty and the Billionaire, would go on to be a bestseller. So all in all, Mikey, you're saying Howard Hughes, he lived quite a life. Let's not forget, mate, back in the 30s, he was awarded the Harmon Trophy, which is given to the world's most outstanding aviator. Yep. He got the Congressional Medal of Honour for services to aviation in 1939. Right. And he's one of a very select handful of people that are in both the National and International Aviation and Space Hall of Fame. Mm. And, mate, we didn't even get around to talking about the Spruce Goose. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And next week, folks, it's extra helpings time. We've got some bizarre maps. We've got a goose that led a crusade. And also, too, some more stuff about Howard Hughes. It gets weirder. Mm -hmm.